There's the before and there's the after. Life is divided that way. There was before I saw The Matrix, my first DVD experience after a life of VHS and my first foray into philosophy, and there was after. The chain reaction that that film caused in my life very clearly led me to here, to this podcast, to this moment sitting at my microphone speaking to you. The experience of watching that film alone in a basement I had never been in while my mom hung out with her friend upstairs was mind-blowing, to put it simple. The Matrix made me realize how you can blend reality with fiction to tell a good story. Over the years, re-watching the film made me realize that fiction can be a prediction and that over time it can become a reality. Does art imitate life or does life follow the path that artists lay before it? Are we on the verge of creating the Matrix? Will I see it in my lifetime? Will we discover how to back up and store our consciousness in an invisible web of internet built into the universe itself? Will we take the growingly impressive robot bodies we're making and merge them with our minds to achieve eternal life? Will we become the Borg? Assimilation is inevitable. Resistance is futile. And will artists like myself lean into that new form of life, or will we rebel, claiming that death is the only thing that makes life real and worth living? What does it mean to exist? And is it really defined by our mortality? There's the before, and then there's the after. Before 2013, a good friend and I bump heads together about creating a YouTube channel to fill the gap of horror content. He knows the experiences I claim to be real, the experiences from high school days breaking into abandoned buildings and seeking out haunted locations. I told my first story, and I got 27,000 views overnight. I committed to a story a week for close to two years, and then it ended. That was the before. Many of you have reached out to me over the years. Where did you go? Will you ever come back? My answer to that last part was always, I want to. It's funny how when you start to age and you begin to feel the effects of time on your body, the daily soreness, the upset stomach when you eat your favorite foods, the development of allergies, when you start to age suddenly you find yourself laying in bed at night wishing that instead of sleeping you could just stay awake and live a few more hours before you shut down. I used to fight it. Those two years of running haunting season, I went to bed at 2 and woke up at 5.30 every day without fail for two years. I think I was desperately avoiding sleep because to me, sleep was a waste of time. Or so I thought. I used to obsess over horror movies and Stephen King novels and going on ghost hunts or paranormal investigations in Minnesota, but again, that was all before. There's been a lot of before and after in my life. Some small moments, some medium-sized events, but nothing so trajectory-altering as when I watched my best friend plummet 60 feet onto jagged rocks, disappearing from sight behind a large boulder just before impact. It was his bachelor party weekend, two weeks before the wedding. I took him to Vermont with my brother and our friend Ian. That morning we ate breakfast and vanilla milkshakes, and I shared that I found a place where we could hang out and jump off a rock into water. Simple fun. It was a popular spot on a river in a nearby state park, one that was known as being a safe spot to jump. The pool was about 15 feet deep and laid at the bottom of a few small cascading waterfalls. The boulder was just 10 feet above the water at most, so nothing too scary, 
But for anyone feeling brave, there was an opposite side that was about twice as high. We jumped, shot some footage on our GoPro, nipped at whiskey from a small flask, and took some photos with my film camera. One of Ian, one of Zach, and one of Craig. That was the before. Before the kids showed up. Two boys with the immortal swagger only 17-year-olds have. They started on the 20-foot cliffside and immediately performed backflips, their heads nearly missing the side of the rock, their bodies barely making it into the deep part of the water. We were immediately uncomfortable. I remember Craig saying, how are we the adults in this situation? These kids were reckless and playing with fate. As it goes, the kids got bored easily, craving the adrenaline high that would get them off. They climbed up the jagged rocks to a ledge that, based on the height of Craig standing at the base, I estimated to be about 60 feet. I'm pretty good at these things. So the four of us talked it over, and as we watched these children on the ledge try to bully each other into jumping, you first, no, you first, into the relatively shallow and small pocket of water below. To walk away would be irresponsible. To do nothing would make us accomplices. Craig climbed the side of the cliff to talk to them. He told them that hesitating right before the jump could mean the difference between life and death. He told them it wasn't worth the risk. But Craig wasn't standing on the ledge, see, because there was only room for two people. Craig was standing on the dirt next to the ledge, and as fate would have it, it had rained the night before, and though Craig is a small person, he was still too much weight for the ground beneath him and he began to slide. The ground gave out. In nothing but a bathing suit, Craig began to slide. I'm falling, he called out, almost calmly. I was just getting out of the water. My head turned to see it all happen. The only witness other than the two teens. Bareback, he slid about 30 feet, grasping at treelings too small to save him, building momentum, and then came the rock, sitting like a nose of sharp, rigid granite. Craig saw the water, and he saw the rocks below, and he thought, if I go in the water, I'll surely die. So at the last second, just before the deadfall, he pushed himself towards the rock. I saw it all. His body fell the remaining 30 feet and disappeared behind the jumping boulder, and there was a sound of wet meat, a bag of steaks hitting the rocks below, just out of sight. All sound stopped. There were no birds, no bugs, no kids horsing around. Even the water fell silent for what felt like an eternity. And then a small, weak voice called out, I'm alive! I remember every detail of what happened next, but I'll spare you the complexity of finding cell service in the middle of a state park, evacuating someone to a hospital 90 minutes away on bumpy roads with two completely shattered feet and no painkillers, It's a painful story for another time. You see, the only thing that matters here is that on the day of my best friend's wedding, he wasn't dead. He was alive. And I don't really know why. After two days of emergency surgeries, the nurses finally rolled Craig on his side to clean him up. What's the damage? He said. Huh? Well, I slid over jagged rock with no shirt on. I'm just wondering how messed up my body is. Well, the nurse checked him out, head to toe, and aside from his two shattered heels, a crumpled left foot, and a dislocated toe, 
The only mark on the outside of his entire body was a small centimeter long slit like a paper cut under one of his pinky toes. The four of us experienced something that day that changed our lives. We will forever be bonded by the moment our friend fell to his death and miraculously survived. And for me personally, everything after that moment completely changed. Suddenly I couldn't sit through horror movies anymore. I couldn't write, I couldn't think. Life became a laundry list of things I could do to avoid thinking about my own and my friend's mortality. It took years to be able to hike again, even on the safest of paths. His fall would play like a broken film reel on loop over and over, faster and faster, anytime I closed my eyes. This was the horrible, unbearable after. But time has a way of scabbing over even the most painful of moments. I'm left with a huge, beautiful, and appalling scar on my soul from that day. But it has healed. I slowly started going back to the movies. I found my love for scary stories again. It's war movies I can't handle now. The death is just too real. And you know, politics. But I face it now, brave and grateful for this life. I'm ready and fully equipped to deal with my own mortality and to face the darkness head on and to step through the door to the unknown. You see, all of this is to say, I'm back. Welcome to the Haunting Season podcast. This is episode one. I'm back. And I brought with me all the way from across town, streaming straight to tape from quarantine, my co-host for the show, Cody Dugan. Oh, ow. There's some horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. There's some horrors in this house. This is Menacing Man. Joshua. So do we end the show there? Menacing man. A, where do we go from here? My goodness. I don't know. Holy we cow, can Cody. call it a wrap um, if you want. This makeup's kind of hurt my eyes and this wig is all over my mouth. Yeah. When I when I meant like dress up a little bit, I meant like maybe like a, a nice shirt. or oh. This is great. I love this. Oh, you were expecting me to wear a suit or a tuxedo or something that no, nature? No, not at all. I expected you to be you, Cody. What's going on, man? Hey, not too much. Just having fun. Enjoying the uh, lovely uh, temperatures and weathers of Los Angeles. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Can you see me through that hair? <laughs> uh, let me. I'm going to take off this wig. Okay. Fair enough. So, Cody, so it's been a couple of years since I've interacted with anything haunting season, so I, I think we should probably just start off with introducing who we are. Yeah, tell me, who the hell are you, Josh Sterling Bragg? JSB, tell me, who is the man, the myth, the legend? <laughs> I don't know about legend, but yeah, so I'm a, a photographer and a cinematographer in Los Angeles. I've got a passion for, you know, horror movies and paranormal stuff. I'm the creative director of Believe Limited, who's the company who's like bringing haunting season back from the dead. But, you know, I spent my whole life telling stories in high school and college. It was as an actor. And then after college, it was directing theater. And then I got a job in video production. And then in 2013, I started Haunting Season with my friend Matt. And then in 2015, after a few
few large life moments. And after some really hard work, I started this job here, which is like my dream job. I get to do whatever I want. I mean, I'm, I'm a cinematographer. I'm an editor. I'm a producer. I'm a photographer. Sometimes I still get to act. I mean, I guess you could call this acting in, in a sense. And so I've gone to like something like 15 different countries in the past five years shooting documentaries. I mean, it's been a really crazy couple of years, but I've always had a spot in my heart for haunting season. And that's, you know, why when my company was pitching new podcasts, I, I had to jump on the opportunity. Yeah, here we are. I mean, episode one. This is awesome. This is very exciting. Cody, who who are you? I'll start with this. I'll start with a teaser. Think American Horror Story, Chronic Masturbator. That's where I'm going to start, okay? You... That's, 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 my, that's my hook. That's how I'm going to hook you in. Okay, yeah, I'm hooked. Tell me about Chronic Masturbation, I guess. This is going a strange I'm a zona boy. I'm born and raised in uh, Phoenix. Hated it. Could not stay in the weather. 115 degrees. Just the urban land. It's horrible. So I went up north to Flagstaff and uh, studied history and uh, English. And then like anybody who has a degree in history, the first thing you'd want to do is go work at a radio station, right? I mean, you're qualified for that. Sure. So I got a bogus resume. And then I dropped it off at the radio station. And what do you I was mean like, bogus well, resume? Like My roommate... His parents owned a radio station in Colorado, and I was like, "Hey, could you have your parents email me a uh, what a, like a, a resume, like a real radio person's resume looks like?" And he was like, "Yeah, why?" I was like, "I think I'm gonna just try to get a radio job," and he's like, "Well, do you don't have any experience," and I was like, "Yeah, well, what's the worst thing that happens? They like, hire me." Wait, so do you have any experience? No, what are you doing no. here? <laughs> I had none, but I just figured I was like, "I'll just I'll just see if it, this flies. If it doesn't, then oh well." Well, bad news. They called me and then I got the job and then I had to do an overnight shift. And I kept on calling the guy like saying, hey, so am I going to be doing some training? He's like, you don't need training. You've got 10 years experience in radio. And I was like, yeah, right. (laughs) Of course. So So, what does this have to do with chronic masturbation? All right. All right. So anyways, I worked in radio for like 15 years. I did all that. Eventually went on. And then I went on vacation out here to California, and uh, my buddy said, you should go audition for uh, this part in American Horror Story. It's, we just wrapped up on season one, and we've got you know a green light for season two. So I said, all right. I'd never been you know, in any sort of theater background at all. I'd never been to an audition before, so they brought me in for the audition. And it wasn't anything like I didn't have to Please work, take you off know, your clothes. Sir. Yeah, exactly. Or show them how I would do it. <laughs> uh, but they just they asked me a couple of questions about like the Catholic Church, like because they kind of shed a bad light on the Catholic Church and also with nudity and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I went back to Flagstaff and two weeks later they called and they said, you got the part. Working I remember on that. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the. Uh, no, no. I specifically remember like I can close my eyes, unfortunately, and, and, <laughs> and physically see you like I know. Oh, you were yeah. In, was it you were in like one of those like uh, paper gowns with the open yeah, butt? And sometimes, or yeah. They, they would put me in the what are those things called? The the harness thing. So you a can't. Straight jacket. Straight jacket. Yeah. I was in that quite a bit, quite a few times. A lot of, lot of fun. Um, and it was really kind of cool because it was set in like an asylum. And there was also, I think there was church, but it was it was everything, like the set deck was just amazing. But showing up to set every single day in this whole entire atmosphere was just like, took me right back to like my childhood. And I used to create, me and like the neighborhood friends, we used to create these like haunted houses and we put them yeah, on I was going to say, it kind of kind of feels like a haunted house, like a, a real set like that. Totally. And so we used to put them on in the uh, neighborhood. Haunted houses. Yeah, like in our garage and then our backyard was like our graveyard. But we used to charge, you know, mission fee was like Squeeze-Its. Do you remember Squeeze-Its? yeah. Were those made out of wax or just like shitty plastic? It was like shitty plastic. And that would be the uh, cost of admission. Yeah, so we used to put on those haunted houses all the time until 
we buried my sister in the backyard up to her head in dirt and <laughs> my mom found her and she was like all right shutting it down you know this does this is not up to code we're shutting down the haunted house boom that was it sure our neighborhood was like a loop and at the top of the block was sean's house and he every year he was like obsessed with freddy krueger and stuff and every year he would do a haunted house and like you know it had the guy with the chainsaw oh. and it had you know someone hanging from the tree house and i always found that interesting but it was like really scary because my level of of like being scared is like so low et growing up was like the scariest movie for me et yeah you know like ah, and he's like running through the cornfield or the yeah, baseball well, comes is, back out the way it's yeah. one of my all-time favorite movies but it, it I've that noise haunts me. I, I remember one time, so my dad had the stereo hookup, the big like movie watching stereo hookup downstairs in the basement. And I knew that scene was coming. And you know, it's like only like eight minutes into the movie, but I tried to like finish all the popcorn and be like, oh, I got to go make pour, more popcorn you know, right now <laughs> yeah. at this uh, strategic moment. And so I went upstairs to escape the noise, but he also had like stereo speakers upstairs so you could like listen to music up in the kitchen and uh they were on so i was just alone in the kitchen with like ah that sound oh my gosh i love i love the sounds i used to as a kid i used to just listen to do you remember like did like disney well this is probably dating me but i used to have a record player as a kid and i used to buy records and they would always be like haunted house sound effects or this one that was like this this hammy english actor who would tell these stories about like jack the ripper and it would have you know, Phantom of the Opera, and it would have all this background noise and this, like, crazy sounds and, like, the haunted house sounds, which I would just, like, fall asleep. This would, this would put me to sleep. These would be my, like, lullabies as I would go to sleep. So I love, I love this. I still do today. I go to bed today with my, uh, with my fiance, and I put it on. That's, first of all, nuts. But, with, like, what makes you so interested in this? Like, what, what, do you enjoy being scared? Do you like fear? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a junkie for it. I, I love, you know, I love being scared. October 27th is my birthday. It's kind of like a celebration. It's my, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Do you think you like it because you're like, you're not afraid you're going to die listening to a record or being in a haunted house that was built for Halloween? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not afraid I'm going to get like stabbed by somebody in a, you know, a haunted house that I go pay admission for. What if it was like, a, you know, a real haunting? Have you ever experienced anything like that? No, I've never, I've, I want to, I want to. I think the closest I've ever come to anything like that was Gettysburg. It was more of a feeling. I didn't hear any like knocking around or any like, you know, sounds or shots fired or anything off in the background but just like a real heavy heavy feeling oh yeah it was really hard to like smile or you know you just felt like really heavy you know, a lot of death there I mean, yeah yeah <sighs> and then getting the five points in new york my fiance jessica was going through little italy and i was going through uh chinatown and i was like i'm gonna go check out the five points so i walked around and i was like oh i gotta i gotta show jess this stuff so we went over there and she was like i gotta get out of here and i was like what She's like, I'm, I'm just going to start bawling. I just don't like the feeling I'm getting here right now. She's like, it's just so sad. Yeah, so you've experienced it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But I want the big, you know, thing where there's like someone coming down the stairs. I want like, why? I want the whole shebang, man. But you, you've got some story. I mean, you are Josh Sterling Bragg, the ghost hunter, right? You've got some story. You were, you were freaking pushed, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm no Zach Baggins. I, I followed around a documentary <laughs> crew for, you know, or I was the documentary crew for a for a paranormal investigation group in Minnesota. And we're going to have to have them on the show and talk about that stuff. But I think more importantly right now, now that we kind of know a little bit of like really weird random facts about each other, uh, maybe we just talk about what the show is. It's obviously different, right? Here we are wearing headphones. We got microphones. Like, well, what's going on, Cody? What is this? Well, okay. So this is basically what we'll do is we'll start a show like this every month. And then we'll have a designated fear of yeah fear of the month. So this month 
we're going to go with death. Yeah, we'll just follow the theme. We'll see what pops up. Exactly. And then we'll interview somebody, maybe a author of scary stories, or maybe someone who has like a near-death experience. You know, we'll go from there. Yeah, so that'll be like our uh, our podcast of the month, right? And so then week two and week three, because I want these to come out every week because that's what we used to do. Uh, week two and week three will be in the original style of the show. It'll be a two-part story. Part one will have the cliffhanger. Part two will have the riveting conclusion. And it'll be a 360-degree soundscape, best listened to in the dark with headphones, and really just designed, hopefully, to freak you out and make you have weird dreams. And then the final week, we'll go into the Wayback Machine to what, like 2013? And we'll go into the archives and we'll watch those things and we'll discuss it later. Yeah, we'll pull up an episode and have Cody watch it and see if we can scare the hell out of him. <laughs> Good luck! But I'm, I'm also realizing now, I'm looking at the calendar, um, October has five weeks not four you know it's one of those weird ones where the paychecks get messed up and all that october has five weeks so it's longer than than most yeah it is fortunately this is some good news for 2020 there's finally some good news october is a lot longer so what are we gonna do we gonna go live or what are we what what's the big deal actually that's not a bad idea all right well then what do we want to do like the night before halloween yeah mischief night mischief night yeah you told me about this before what the heck is it oh i'll, I'll tell you on mischief night <laughs> <laughs> all right let's make a pact do we, Let's do it. Do we do a pack. Do we have to like burn something or? When all content for the month is released and Josh and Cody have explored the deceased, when the month lengthens to reveal a fifth week, a live audience haunting season will seek. Will you tune in? It'll be fright or flight. We'll have our first live show this month on Mischief Night. You're way too good at this. So, this is where we would put an ad. We want to have ads because they'll help pay to keep the show going. You know about ads. But since this is episode one, we don't have anyone to advertise just yet. But I do have a feature film, my first as a director of photography, actually, and it's only just come out. It's a documentary called Bombardier Blood, and it follows the first person with a bleeding disorder to climb Mount Everest and the Seven Summits. That's the tallest mountain on each continent. We released it in August, and the reason I think you might enjoy it is because it fits in with the fear of the month this month, facing the fear of death and our own mortality. You see, it's more than just a climbing movie. We really did our best to show what life is like in the U.S. with a bleeding disorder and how vastly different life is for a person living with a bleeding disorder in a developing country. As the DP, I got to see life in Nepal firsthand. I got to see the destruction that the 2015 earthquake caused, houses cracked in half, generations of families living in small shacks as they struggle every day to rebuild their lives. We sent Chris up Mount Everest to show how access to healthcare can completely change people's lives. And it was a major risk. People still die on that mountain. In fact, professional climber Uli Steck fell to his death in front of Chris's Sherpas that year, which caused us all to wonder, what will happen to Chris? Mortality and fear of dying are huge themes in this movie, and we dive into some pretty fascinating stuff about the history of bleeding disorders, the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, and what life is like now in different parts of the world, which you may be surprised to find out can be really grim. Anyway, so that's the ad today. If you get a chance, go watch Bombardier Blood on iTunes and let me know what you think. Oh, and it's also on Amazon and Google Play and Fandango Now, Xfinity, Spectrum, uh, Ubiquity? Is that one? And YouTube. All right.
Well, so just to like, I don't know, keep harping on the theme here. Like, what about just death in general? Like, take paranormal out of the picture here. Is that something you ponder and think about and worry about? You know, more so this year, believe it or not, than in previous years. And not really like, I'm not thinking about my own mortality, but like more concerned like, oh, my parents, you know, I worry about them. I worry oh, about sure. my, my like sister's safety, my niece's nephews, Jess and her family. It's almost like you worry about not necessarily what will happen to you, but what will happen to everybody else you leave behind. Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of see it like, for me, life is much scarier than, than death. You know who has some really interesting thoughts about this is the author Kathy Koja. Oh, our first guest, yes. Yeah, how's that for a transition? Kathy is the author of um, incredible short and long form horror stories. And uh, also some, uh, from what I've read, like young adult novels. And then she's also involved with the uh, uh, Immersive Theater, which is kind of like a haunted house. Like, I think that's where they all stem from, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, she's pretty much an all-American badass author with some really iconic reading material for everybody to enjoy. (laughs) And her, what, her first book? is being re-released. This was uh, The Cypher, right? Yeah, The Cypher. I'm reading it right now. It's um, it's messed up. It's awesome. It's really cool. This is the book that launched her career, Josh. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk to her. I have no accent. We are the accentless people. <laughs> we are the baseline people. Yeah, okay, no, all right. We don't all right. Accents. I have family from Ohio, so uh, but I'm originally from Arizona. But go ahead. I, um, so are you are from Michigan originally? Yes, I'm a native Detroiter. I've been to Detroit once or twice, but I've spent most of my time up north over in Minneapolis. And I find, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the north or if it's because of specifically Minnesota, but it, it seems like a very spiritual place. One of the things that's very interesting about Detroit is... It's an old French settlement. It's over 300 years old. It, it uh, predates the home of the brave here. And actually, it's probably most analogous to New Orleans for that reason. It had because it comes out of that old French culture. And there's a, a beautiful church, a Catholic church called St. Anne's that is extremely old in Detroit and still active, still an active parish. They still you know, have worship services there. And it's wild to go in there and think of the years upon years upon years that people have been in there, you know, lighting candles and praying. And, you know, theaters have this as well. Any place, I once had a, had an argument, not an argument, but kind of an argument with a puppeteer and puppet creator. And I said, come on, you want to tell me that if I come in this building or you come in this building, anybody come in this building, that hush that's waiting there, don't tell me that's not alive. Don't tell me there's not some residue of the audiences and the performers and that shared energy. It's like church. And he finally owned grudgingly that, yes, it was like church and that any church or temple or would have that in his theater had it too. Did, did you grow up in the church? I did. Is, was that your first introduction to death? Or, uh, you know, do you remember like the first time you, you realized that like death is a thing? You know, it was a goldfish. Was it sitting in church? You know, the the one thing that I really love, and I am not um, a person of that faith anymore um, or of any faith, but one thing that I will always be grateful for in growing up in the Catholic church was 
the utterly matter-of-fact acceptance of bizarre mysteries, right? It was just part of what you grew up with. It's like, okay, you go to church on Sunday and then, you know, there's body and blood. Okay, there's that. Then it's a saint's day. And so you have, and I have all these books of the saints and they're so great because they're so bizarre. It's like, I'm St. Januarius and my blood liquefies once a year. And you can go to this church and see this little vial of my blood and it'll turn water. I'm this saint. Here's my picture of me with my eyes on a fucking plate. It's like, wow, this is really great. And it's so weird. So when you're growing up, I mean, as a kid, you don't make a lot of distinctions between like your parents or caregivers, whoever says to you, do not touch the stove or you will burn the shit out of your hand. Okay. And then you touch the stove and you do indeed burn the shit out of your hand. So you say, okay, well, they're right about that. So if they're telling you that there's like hell and endless torment and heaven and endless bliss, you're going to buy it for a while. You know, death is like the, the gateway, you know, to the good stuff and you're supposed to despise your flesh and whatever, which is like, but <laughs> I was too young to have grown up in the, the old, old, you know, Latin rite, which must have been really punk rock because wow, you know, but even, even coming up when I did, it does give you a working definition and acceptance of some pretty odd mysteries that I think is excellent grounding, especially for an artist of any kind. Did you have a fear of death? Was that just... I don't think I took it seriously as a thing that was going to happen to me, probably till um, people close to me died in their 40s. And it really gets your attention. You're like, mm. wow, okay. I understood empirically that this was going to be my problem too, but oh, wow, okay, so I better get busy. It does concentrate your mind though. Yeah, for sure. I remember distinctly like being in a pew at like age 10 and saying the Lord's Prayer or something and then turning to my mom and then was like, wait, what do you mean he descended into hell? Whoa. You I know, know right? It's like, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Yeah. There's, a, there's this gigantic church about a mile from my house. It's called the National Shrine of the Little Flower, and it's it's dedicated to St. Therese. They have this ginormous stone crucifix Jesus hanging there, and it's so depressing. <laughs> and you think, your marketing is so bad, because if I was doing your marketing, I will tell you this, I would lean a lot heavier on the fact, like, this guy literally came back from the dead how sweet is that do you want a piece of that you can get a piece of that don't show me this terrible dead person this is terrible if death is the worst thing that can happen to you but it also unites you with god and the afterlife and everybody your message is very mixed and i don't <laughs> understand what you're selling me it makes no sense you said in your 40s is when you first started being like oh you know shit this this can happen and maybe getting a fear. What what was the fear? Was the fear of leaving someone behind here, or was it the fear of maybe possibly, you know, what is the afterlife? Running out of time. You know that you won't be able to experience all the things that you would like to be able to do the things that you want to do. Maybe to be helpful in ways that you're like, oh shit, because eventually, like my parts will start falling off, and then I won't be helpful anymore. People are going to have to help me and. And then, yeah, and of course, leaving behind the ones that, that you love. That is very hard. Um, at one time, 
Oh, golly. Almost 20 years ago, um, two of our cats died, one after prolonged illnesses, one right after the other. And that was, wow. It was so difficult to go through. And I remember friends sending us flowers. And at the time, it, this was still like not really a, you know, your animals' deaths were not considered the way they are now. And the florist brought the flowers to the door, the delivery guy. And he said to my husband, you got flowers for a dead cat? He said, don't let my wife hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Those kinds of losses, especially animal losses. I'm a big animal person and those are almost unbearable because it, when it, when it's a human, unless it's a baby or something, God forbid, but when it's a human, it's like breaking up with someone. You're like, Oh, I'm so sad. And I think of only of the good things, but then later you're like, no, I remember the whole person. And sometimes they were a dick and sometimes they were good and da da da. But with the animals, they're only good. And you're like, Oh, my animals are gone. That, that, those to me are the hardest deaths. People deaths. I was with both my parents when they died, and I was glad to have been there, very glad. Not in love with the machinery of funerals. It takes some of the, I was going to say some of the fun out of death. It takes. <laughs> the first time I saw a real dead person, not you know, in a casket with the whatever, um, was at the Wayne State University more, which maybe I shouldn't say that because I wasn't supposed to be there, but whatever, it's a long time ago. And I was was helping a friend out in one of the faculty offices and people said, oh, because I was the new person. They're like, want to see the morgue? I'm like, yeah, let's go see the morgue. And it was so comforting because they looked normal. It looked like a normal thing to happen. It's like, oh, you can tell that they're dead because their skin tones are very different. But it didn't look like that awful performative wax doll. You know, no matter what you do to a dead person, let's face it, they're dead. They're not going to look good. Do I look all right? How's my blush? That way, yeah. Why would you need that burden too, right? You've had a bunch of interesting experiences in different locations and and especially being around uh dead people is a pretty unique one have you ever experienced anything that you would define as paranormal yes and yes i have been in places where i felt not personally negatively impacted but it's like this is not a good place those things will come upon you and you feel it so strongly and you may be with other people who don't feel it at all, or maybe everybody feels it. I don't know where you put the parameters of the paranormal or where any of us, where you draw them when you become aware of a concomitant reality, maybe is a way to say it. In fact, the book that I'm working on right now, the project called Dark Factory. You know, one of those days where you just feel like Nobody gives a shit about what I'm doing and everything is shit and shit. Mm -hmm. And so I went to take a walk in my neighborhood here and I walked down the street and I'm like, fucking, fucking, care to work myself to death. Nobody even cares. Nobody even says thank you. Nobody even says thank you. And there was a little piece of paper lying on the sidewalk. And for whatever reason, I picked up the little piece of paper and opened it up and it said, thank you very much. And I dropped the paper. I was so stunned. I'll never forget how that felt. It was as if, it wasn't as if, it's like a direct response to whatever your problem may be. You feel underappreciated. You want someone to say thank you. Okay, thank you very much. 
And I just left the paper there and went home and went back to work. It's like, okay, I, you, somebody heard me. Something heard me. I have no explanation for that except that concomitant reality. And then I started thinking about what, what might that be then? You know, in the layer cake of reality, you know, where are we? Are we the creamy middle? Are we the crunchy, you know, outer coating? Where are we? And that's how Dark Factory, that's where Dark Factory takes its, its worldview from. Obviously, that's some direct inspiration that led to a direct story. But what got you into the general idea of telling stories that were scary? It's about where your receptors are as, you know, as an artist or as a consumer of art. Um, the same way, you know, somebody can show you a musician or, you know, an artist they really love and go, oh, you really like this guy. You And you don't love them. And you try to love them, but you can't because you don't have the receptors for it. It isn't that it's bad or there's anything wrong with it. I don't like Jane Austen. I can't read Jane Austen because I know there's no possibility of disaster. And I really need a possibility of disaster. That's why I love Charlotte Bronte and Emily Bronte is my God. And because there's always this horrible possibility that things will deteriorate you know past all limits and i have receptors for that so that's why i think i was it was so natural to you know write a book like the cipher and i'm thinking a lot about the cipher obviously it's getting re-released you know in a week so that my life right now is 24 7 cipher and if you have the receptors for it it's going to make sense to you and if you don't you know I sometimes see these these reviews where people will go, I hated this book, and which is totally legit. I mean, mm-hmm. you cannot be a creator of anything and go, oh, people didn't like my shit. Well, you know, too bad. Then don't make it. I mean, it did, that's fair game. But when people will say, I hated this book, and yet I read it all. And say, why do you, why does anybody force themselves through a a piece of work that they don't like. That I don't understand. So in essence, is a, is a full shit review a really good review? Because the person sat through and went through all this crap and was like, oh my God, I spent three months reading this book that I hate. Either way, right, that's absolutely valid. If you engaged with it fully, then I'm happy. I did my job. You don't have to like it but you did engage with it and it engaged with you. Going back to Cypher, you said it's being, uh, it's being redistributed. It's being reprinted um, in English, the first time in English for many thousands of years. No, it came out in 1991 and it's being reissued. It's had other iterations. It's been translated in you know, many languages and has an audio version and an ebook version. But this is the first print English version in a long time and Meerkat Press has brought it out again. I started reading it and I'm certainly hooked. Um, and I'm going to be completing it. So I'm like maybe a quarter of the way in and I've gotten to know Nicholas and Nakota, right, are the main characters. And they've got this hole that they've found in the broom closet of this decrepit kind of like, I don't know, crash pad that they're both kind of half living out of. And um, and that whole changes things. And this is very in the book, so I'm not spoiling anything for anyone listening, but they, they put a jar of bugs on the edge of it and they all sort of like morph in some way. And then they put a rat down and it sort of explodes. And Nakoda's obsessed with these changes and Nicholas is sort of on the edge of it a little 
intrigued and, and like kind of like creeping over the shoulder Brady Bunch style, but like cautious. And that's kind of the setup for everything, right? And then it's the the idea of like what where could it go from here? And there there certainly is that risk of like everything could fall apart. Like the whole universe could fall apart for all we know at the beginning of this. Book. And that it's it's anomalous. Um, there were people the first time around who were like. I would like to know more about how did it happen or where did it come from? And this book is not really about that. It is not about explaining things. There are so many, you know, quote unquote, normal mysteries in, in the visible universe to focus on trying to explain away the thing would be to miss the point of that particular book breaking bad is one of my favorite all-time shows and it's it's for the same reason you know like everything could be lost at any given moment anyone could die at any given moment as we got towards the end of that show everybody was iterating on this should happen or that should happen and then people are disappointed and i feel like the same thing if you over explain something or you, you spend a lot of time explaining it there's there's room for disappointment there because the imagination is no longer in control Right. Everyone wants their version to be the truth. And so if you don't explain it, maybe maybe that allows the reader to be like, well, I, I know what it is. Which is kind of the basis of all religion. Right. I mean, it's like I this is what God is. And no, it isn't. It's this. And no, you have to believe like this. And no, you have, it's like if you could accept the mystery of that, then you would be freer to focus on maybe what religion should do for you and others in your life rather than, you know, who gets to wear what hat and why you're bad if you don't, you know, do this thing. It, especially maybe in a Western culture, we have a lot of problems with mysteries. We want things explained. We want to know how it works and we want to get to the bottom of it. And there is no getting to the bottom of this hole in this book. So the main character is... Nicholas, and he's male. And I noticed in Velocities, I also read a couple of the short stories in there that that you kind of go back and forth between male and female main characters. So with this being your first book and being a female writer, what what was the inspiration to, to look at it from that perspective? Nicholas was actually a character, peripheral character in another book that I was trying to write. And that was not going well. I wasn't making any headway. But then when I like snatched him out of there and put him in his own place, then things started to happen. Mm. And I said, oh, okay, all right. I'm just going to follow this guy and see what he does. Then there was Nakoda pretty quickly, who has many names in the book. She's also Jane. She's also Shrike. She has lots of names. And then there was this fun hole in the floor. And when you put these... You know, a, a trio is always a very combustible, you know, configuration, right? So when you have these two very different people and this unexplained phenomenon, it just got really fun really fast. I don't necessarily think in gendered terms ever when I'm writing. It's, I mean, your job as, as a writer, as any kind of artist, is to create something that is real enough that it can be experienced as real by whoever is, you know, partaking of your stuff. I have to be able to understand all the characters in what I'm writing, no matter who they are or, you know, where they are on the, the human spectrum. But I don't necessarily ever think in terms of gender. I just find it interesting because I, I, I was told by someone at some point in some stupid college class, like, 
only write the things that like pertain to your exact world and life that you live in. Obviously, like I write paranormal stories and try and go outside the box and challenge people's beliefs and 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 all of that. But it took some work to get there. I too think that's a really pernicious and stupid piece of advice because let's put it this way: if I could only write about people who are like me, like. I think I would be crazy by now from boredom. I mean, what would be the point, right? I, The point is to see where your own experience, or one of the points, where, where's the Venn diagram between me and what I know, and then this whole other experience. Where's the, you know, where's that point where we meet, and then I can insert myself into this other experience and see what it might be like, and then bring that news back. Very few giants have written books about giants. That is a true thing. So otherwise, we would never have any books about giants at all. And that would be bad. That's very true. I write poetry not to be published, but just as a creative outlet. We're out here in Los Angeles, so there's tons of script writers and all sorts of people. What, what if any, advice would you give someone who's like a, who has an idea but is afraid to get started? Because really, all you need is a pad and a pen. I know that fear. I have that fear all the time. I mean, I have it whenever I'm starting anything new and go, am I going to be able to to get into this? Am I going to be able to burrow into this and figure it out? And just because I have this idea, does it mean I can do anything with it? And it's a lot more, it's easier to exist in that kind of liminal space between having the idea and make trying to make it real because you're still engaged with it and it's still nourishing you and it's still like exciting to think about I could do this or I could do that but to actually engage I mean it's like with another person you can look at a person and go oh you know he's fine I'd like to meet him whatever but then if I walk over there and say something oh what if he says hey you know bag off whatever and then if you do walk over there and talk to them and then you might find out they're like a dick or you know, you're like, oh, no, I don't know what to do. And I think we're afraid of that. Like, what if my great idea is not that great? Or worse, yeah, what if it's a great idea, but I'm not that great and I'll never, then I'll really be crushed because I tried to do this great thing and I failed. So then the next time I try to do something, what if I fail at that too? You know, and we're so good at creating these awful scenarios where we fail and crash and burn and die. And, you know, our creativity is, is turned to red slush and everything's bad. The worst that could happen is that you tried and failed. That is the worst. But if you don't do that, then the actual worst thing happens is that then maybe you don't do that. And then maybe you don't do anything because you're paralyzed and that's not acceptable. It's like being outside the, the house made of candy and going, oh, I don't know what to do. What if I pull the doorway and it's taffy? And, you know, just start eating your way in. Just eat. And then if it doesn't work, try another way. I mean, come on. What else you got to do anyway? Come on. Go eat the candy house. There, that's the advice. Go eat the candy house. Go eat the, okay. So then when you go do that and then you enjoy it, but then you've, the, you've eaten the whole house and you go, now what the hell do I do? Have you like running into the, like the writer's block? Do you have, uh, uh, you know, any sort of like advice or something that somebody's like stuck and they're like, Geez, I don't know, how the hell am I going to finish this? I don't know where to go. Sometimes the only cure for that is experience is to just keep doing it. And then you at least have that backlog of saying, okay, well, I ate my way out of that candy house. So I should probably be able to get out of this one too. But where do you find the next candy house? I don't know. They have to come to you. If you keep your you know, lenses clear and your receptors open. These are my receptor ears. 
things do calm. I mean, they keep, they're all out there and they keep the same way that you'll see. It's so odd looking back when you see like three films about the same thing come out. Like weren't there three Houdini movies or something like one boom, yeah, boom, boom, boom. Of right course. Out. Yeah. It happens. It's like someone just like passes a script around and it goes to all the offices and they're like, Oh, we got to be the first one on this thing. And then somebody copies it. And then, you know, and why then, right? Why was that particular, right? We don't know why we don't know why any of these things, that's why people saying, oh, I can't wait to read all the, you know, Rona books when all this is over. I can. I never want to read <laughs> yeah, them. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, but, but hypothetically, if this was a book that was being worked on and the author died and they needed someone to finish it, who would you want to finish the, the novel of 2020? If you say yourself, you have to come back on the pod and tell us how this thing ends. Uh. <laughs> How about someone who's not yet born? Oh. They won't have any reference to any of this. And they would be, they would come at it with a completely different angle. That's who I vote for, the unborn writer. The great unborn writer who is yet to come. I'm, I'm thinking Pixar. I just want some sort of happy ending. Just some sort of that we all learn our lesson and we go forward and we all live happily ever after. No, you have to watch Coco for that. Coco Coco's is the great, best yeah. death movie ever. Oh, yeah. God, I love that movie. I had a meltdown in a dollar theater when I watched it in North Hollywood. The Night of the Living Dead, the original Night of the Living Dead, was probably my formative child experience at the cinema. I saw it when it came out. I was eight years old. That was a genuinely shocking film, not because, oh, zombies are flesh eating, but because it was so relentless. You never had a feeling that those people, there were going to be no Pixar, right? No Pixar coming to save those people. And when you get to the very end and you're so happy and it's like, oh, this guy has brought these people and he's done all this shit and he's done everything right and it's great. And he literally gets shot by a cop. And I remember watching that and going, okay, I know everything I need to know about authority now. Don't trust them. They'll shoot you in the head. And the, the, the racial subtext went right over my head as a kid. Although Romero had said later that the actor was African-American, but he did not choose him because he was African-American. He chose him because he was the actor that he wanted for the role. But that extra layer is there. And mm. wow, when you see that guy get shot, you're like, fuck everything. Okay. I'm, wow, I'm out, right? I'm out. That movie is about nothing but death, right? And to end with that death ups the ante into the stratosphere because it isn't only about defeating the monster. That's why I've never liked horror novels like that. Let's defeat the monster and the town will be saved. You know, no, it won't. The town was not going to be saved. Yeah. It just isn't. I'm sorry, but it's not. I'm not even sorry. I mean, that's just how it is. What can we say? Well, I really appreciate your time taking to, to talk to us. Do you, I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about Cypher and where people can find it. Oh, yes. I think you should all buy it and read it multiple times. No, the Cypher has just been reissued by Meerkat Press, and it is available in finer everywhere, everywhere. And there's a badass audio version also out, and an ebook too, if you are if you want an ebook. Actually, right now, the publisher ran the super cool Cypher fan art contest, 
and now I have to judge the entries. Oh and, boy. Oh my God. The things that people made and created as they're so cool. And now I'm so fucked because I have to <laughs> You, you got to pick one. And they're all so good. So here's another ad. I'm looking forward to the day when we can get someone to pay for these ads, but since we don't have that at the moment, I want to take a minute to shout out North Innsbruck. Hailing from the great state of Minnesota where I've done the vast majority of my paranormal work, North Innsbruck has provided us with an original score for our entire flagship show. So all the cool transitions, all the music in this entire show is North Innsbruck. And Chris, the genius behind this cinematic synthwave, grew up near the Palmer House, where I had one of my most profound experiences to date. It's on the YouTube channel. Check it out. When we found each other on Instagram, it just felt like a natural fit. We share the same energy and excitement for the paranormal and pretty similar work ethic as well. Anyway, if you love the music in this show as much as I do, North Innsbruck is available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and nearly all streaming platforms. The music is perfect for daydreaming, getting some work done, or to read a sci-fi book or horror book too. It's just great music. North Innsbruck. Check them out. What an interview! That was that was that's our first and probably our last. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I, it's hard to believe anything could go as well as that. I could talk to her for you know forever. Oh yeah, sit in a bar and have some drinks and just talk about everything and anything. So a topic that I found particularly interesting was you know we so you mentioned earlier in the show about the catholic church i mean when you were talking about chronic masturbating and then you know kathy was talking about like the old churches and putting on shows in there and the energy that you find in old buildings like that and so i grew up in the church as well i just like have spent a lot of time in graveyards and a lot of time in old buildings and i have spent a lot of time looking at religion and i really love identifying as a christian because it's unexpected a lot of what we know about christians nowadays are are really tied to to rigid, rigid belief systems. And, and the reality of it is like, I just like to love people as much as I love myself, uh, or actually a whole lot more than I love myself. And, you know, I've been to 15 or so different countries over the past couple of years, and I've, I've gotten to know a little bit about these places, but I feel like I don't really understand much about any of the cultures around the world. And so, like, I know as a Christian, what I'm supposed to believe is that the God's son came and died, right? And that means that, like, I'm saved. And so when I die, my spirit goes to heaven. And then eventually, I guess he comes back and then our bodies and and spirits are reunited for, like, eternal life. I know I'm kind of rambling here, but then, like, I know, like, Christianity and Judaism, right? I find that fascinating that they kind of share the same Old Testament, right? But I don't know anything about what they believe about the afterlife. So let's do some research. Let's pull up some stuff here and just kind of jump around the United States and see what we can find. My, uh, Jess. Your fiance. Yeah, my fiance. Her father is, uh, uh, Jewish. Here, we got Judaism right here. Jewish beliefs in death and the afterlife are as diverse as, uh, Judaism itself. From the traditional view, expecting the unity of flesh and spirit in a resurrected body to the idea of that we live on in our children and grandchildren. Oh, I love that. And another belief is the afterlife is here on earth. Heaven is a transitory place where souls reside after death. They reside there until they reunite with their physical bodies at the time when the Messiah comes, which is interesting. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, no, that's because their book ends and then and then the Christian, you know, the New Testament, that's where oh, this happens. According to Christians. 
Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense. And then in another one, heaven is, is not a gated community, folks. Any people in any faith have a place in it. Our actions, not beliefs, determine our fate. That's, that's cute. I like that one. I love that. Uh, yeah. No, that, that seems like really pure and, and rich. And I, that's what I love about different religions is like finding that purity in the center of like, you know, what, what centuries of, of rigidness has kind of, you know, taken apart. So, so those are two like really prevalent religions in the U.S. But like, what about before white people got here? Like, what about indigenous Native American beliefs? Let's see about Navajo, because I'm from, uh, like I said, Arizona. And there's a uh, Navajo country out there. And I know I talked to a couple elders and they have a, a extreme fear. I, I don't know if this is all like every, you know, I mean, this was just the elders that I spoke to. So I'm not well, I wanna... sure. Yeah. I mean, but you have more, more of a reference point than I do. But they're, they're very fearful of death. They believe that an evil spirit or devil is at the bottom of everything that has in any way anything to do with death. And they rarely speak of their dead for a fear of offending the evil one. And I guess this is rooted from the Spanish coming over with plagues that they 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 didn't have the uh, what do you call it vaccine? No, they didn't have a they were, they were uh, immunity to it. So oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. So uh, this is rooted from the Great Plague of fifteen seventy to fifteen seventy five. So they had to like burn the bodies, and they they feared like if they if they talked about someone who passed away that that spirit could enter into their bodies. Is that when they started putting coins on the eyes? Um. No, I think that's like a Greek thing. That's from the uh, Greek tradition of placing coins on the eyes or in the mouths of the dead so that the person could pay Sharon, who's a, a ferryman, to row them across the River Styx once they reached the uh, afterlife. How Somehow we that? made it to Greece. Yeah, you, I wonder if you, if you kind of shorted them on change if you end up out in Florida. So, uh, yeah, bringing it back, I guess, bringing it back to the U.S., but not Florida. What if we go, like, south of the U.S., our, our neighbors... Oh, Mexico. We're linked. In Mexican culture, death is viewed as a natural part of the human cycle, Josh. It is. I mean, we're all going to die, Cody. Of course. Dia de los Muertes. It's Day of the Dead. Mexicans view it not as a day of sadness, but as a day of celebration because their loved ones awaken and celebrate with them. It is celebrated on November 1st and 2nd, so... I guess two days, and the uh, like. What we learned in the Coco is you're you never really die until your name is spoken for the last time. I love that. You know, as a creative, I really connect to that because it's like I don't have, I can't contribute like inventions or uh, the internet or you know, I'm not even a business person. I'm not good with numbers. Like, so I I kind of think all the time like, how can I make sure that like the stuff I do leaves a positive, lasting impact on the world. I love that. So I'm going to work on getting my name spoken for all of eternity. Now, you were also in, uh, I remember you telling me a story. You you love this city. New Orleans. New Orleans. Oh, New Orleans. And they've got, a, I mean, they have yeah. some of the most beautiful cemeteries. Yeah, I love that city. And I love how they treat the dead, right? There's There's this like tradition of flooding the streets and there's the band and the processional and they all march into the mausoleums and everything, you know? So I looked that up. And it looks like uh, it dates back to African rituals, which intended to celebrate the newfound freedom of a departed slave. It's evolved over time to celebrate at the highest honor 
any departed loved one. So they say when the soul is cut loose from the body, that the people cut loose and flood the streets and celebrate. And there's, you know, the music and the marching. And uh, yeah, I, I just love it. But, you know, when I think of New Orleans, I also think about voodoo, which I know like nothing about. I know it's like in the art down there and everything, but like I, I don't know what the actual culture is or what it's linked to. Well, I like maybe Haitian voodoo. Here it is. Haitian voodoo consider there to be life after death. They believe each person has a soul that has both, I'm going to butcher these words, gros bon age, which is a big good angel, and a t bon ange, which is a little good angel. You do a pretty good job. I well, thank that. you very much. When uh, someone dies, the soul core hovers near the corpse for seven to nine days. During this time, the little good angel is vulnerable and can be caught and turned into what is called a spiritual zombie. So there's possibly where that, you know, the zombie stuff comes from. Yeah, I knew that was linked to Haitian and some. You kind of look like a zombie. Oh, thank right you now. very much. I worked really hard on this look. I was, yeah, uh, this is by a sorcerer. And if the soul is not captured, the priest or priestess performs a ritual called Nine Night. And this is to sever the soul from the body so the soul may live in the dark waters for a year and one day. Not two days. Year and one year day. On one... Two days doesn't roll off the tongue like year and one day. What happens after a year and one day? If this is not done, the little good angel may wander the earth and bring misfortune to others. And then after a year and a day, the relatives of the deceased perform the rite of reclamation, reclamation, to raise the dead soul's essence and store it in a clay jar. They have a belief that each person's life experiences can be passed through generations of family. It can possess a family member or priest or priestess to inform any last words of wisdom. I love this, like collective idea that's kind of like a little bit different in all of these of like you live on in your children or you can live on in this clay jar but you know but the way that you you live on i love that aspect of all of this like with the judaism where that like they you live on on their children and they live on their grandchildren and kind of stuff yeah yeah and then i know in the lion king like you live on in the stars and can talk to your children absolutely yep true true story (laughs) so we keep jumping off of uh you know north america here and i think that's because like we're made up of so many different cultures and because there are so many different uh, things that we could Google right now. I mean, we could go on forever. I want to keep investigating. I think the best way to do this is just like anybody we have on the show, we just like figure out what their beliefs are and where it came from. Like next month, we're going to talk to uh, Karen Warren, who's from uh, Australia. Nice. I'd like to learn what they, if whatever customs they have. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, so yeah, as our show keeps going, I, you know, let's hop around the globe and see what we can find out about Japan and Russia and modern day Egypt. And then maybe even uh, Alberta, Canada. Oh, it's beautiful there. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, I went there one time. Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg, produced by Greg Holdsman and Jessica Richmond, and executive produced by Matt Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, and Ryan Gielen, and is a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Gielen. This episode was written and hosted by me, Cody Dugan, and Joshua Sterling Bragg. It was edited by Colby Crow, and all of the music in this episode was made exclusively for the podcast by North Innsbruck. If you like our show, please subscribe on your favorite platform, Full episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. And one last huge shout out to our guest again, Kathy Koja. 
Next week, we go back to the original format of the show to bring you part one of an original two-part story, best listened to in the dark with headphones. See you there.